Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm back again for the Native American Studies channel for the New Books Network. I'm here today with Professor Jorge Coronado. He is professor of Spanish and Portuguese, actually, at uh, Northwestern University. Welcome, Professor Coronado. Uh, Thanks very much, Ryan. Thank you for the the invitation, especially. So we're here today to uh, talk about his new book, published earlier this year, Portraits in the Andes, Photography and Agency, 1900 to 1950. Now, I first want to chat about this uh, striking Rodriguez uh, cover, circa 1940. Can you uh, maybe touch upon a little bit are uh, your reasons for selecting this particular portrait? Sure. Um, there, there are several, and I entirely agree with you. It's a, it's a very striking photo. One reason um, that it's so striking is because it's actually what's called a photo olio, uh, which is an illuminated photograph. Um, it means that it's been painted by hand. In this case, it's uh, Sebastián Rodríguez's brother, Braulio Rodríguez, uh, painted painted the image. Um, so it has color, which none of the other images uh, in the book have. The practical part of that is that uh, because there weren't going to be color plates, this is really kind of the only way to get a, a color photograph into the book. Um, and so I was I was delighted to be able to have it uh, on the on the cover. Uh, in terms of the content of the book, I think it does a really good job of uh, communicating some of the issues that we'll probably talk about uh, that have to do with the ways in which everyday Andeans sought to portray themselves in, in studio photography. So what prompted you to research and study studio portraiture in the early 20th century Southern Andes? Why do you focus on photographic production between Cusco and La Paz? particularly on portraiture rather than, for example, identification photography. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think one of the reasons for uh, photography, I'm, I'm a scholar of, of literature. Um, and in previous work, I'd looked a lot at indigenismo, which is a, a cultural and political movement that sought to revindicate uh, indigenous peoples 
all over Latin America, really. Um, uh, but it was perhaps especially pronounced in places like uh, Mexico, Peru, places with large indigenous populations. Um, so uh, one of the things about uh, the previous study, uh, the research for it, um, one of the the, the uh, features of it was that as I was doing that research, I kept finding these photographs um, and they allowed me to to understand the people that indigenismo thought about uh, lower class Andeans, uh, uh, particularly those that were racially identified as indigenous, but also mestizos, right? Um, uh, in a different way, right? So they gave me an access to those subjects that uh, literature uh, that literature didn't do in the same way, right? Um, so uh, the question about identification photography versus portraiture is also really important because identification photography generally um, was not uh, designed uh, to portray this sort of intimate subjectivity of individual subjects, right? It's, it's, it's used for the state's purposes for identification uh, within uh, state systems like, you know, uh, passport photos or even um, uh, ID photographs you would find at a, at a big company. Um, so I was interested in portraiture because it did something else, right, uh, as, as opposed to that sort of photography. You employ the term modern to suggest the ways in which a technology of vision was cast by both photographers and subjects into practices and objects that accessed ownership of aspects of their cultural, political, and economic milieu. Why did doing so require an important theoretical reinterpretation of photography? Yeah, that, that's um, that's a, a a big question, and I think a really important one for the for the book. Um, the, the term "modern" is, uh, uh, I mean, polysemantic, right? There, there's lots of ways of interpreting it, and, and people have have uh, have have interpreted it in many many different ways, including my, myself. Um, in this particular case. I was interested in photography because it carried the meaning of kind of technological modernity. That is to say, it was a it was a technology that you know caught kind of immediately meant right um, access to modernization uh, uh, and the latest technology as it had been developed in in Europe. Um, and by the early twentieth century, in, in in which I focused the book. Um, that technology had become so cheap that it was available to everybody, right? Um, the important thing for for the theoretical reinterpretation of photography that goes on within the book is the difference between um, photography as a as a scientific practice that tries to capture reality, right? Which is, I think, one way in which you can imagine the origins of photography in Europe. That is to say, it was. Uh, a technology that allowed, you know, the 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 capture of the real, right? Um, so, in some sense, a sort of scientific achievement, right? That finally allowed access to uh, reality in a way that other forms of representation didn't, right? Um, that, of course, is also the case in Latin America. But what I focus on with portraiture is the ways in which um, uh, consumption, right, and the, the 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 buying, right, and ordering and and fabrication of, of, of studio portraits um, has an overwhelming importance within its history in the region, right? Um, that is to say, I, I think you one would have to um, uh, consider 
consumption is the the kind of predominant way in which photography uh, took root and was expressed, especially in that period, um, but even before, right in in the in the late nineteenth century. Um, it just became more popularized by the by the 20th century. So the reinterpretation of photography has to do with um, uh, with the movement from uh, from a technology that portrays the real, right, a sort of scientific, right, uh, technology to one and scientific within quotation marks to one that's uh, that's thought of from the angle of uh, consumption. What does it mean to buy and fabricate these images? On that note. Can you describe for our listeners the first photograph in the book, The Miners, and explain further why you argue that the miners in this photograph represented an imitation of, of observed behavior, as well as an act of self-fabrication vis-a-vis the other image of engineers or managers for the Cerro de Pasco Mining Corporation? Right. Um, so... Uh, that uh, a really striking image uh, as well. Coincidentally, by the same photographer we were just talking about uh, uh, for the cover image, Sebastián Rodríguez. Um, that um, image is is interesting for me um, in terms of introducing the book because it has a lot of these aspects of you know people um, uh, fabricating images, and in this case, fabricating has to do with the ways in which they pose and it's a very elaborate photo in some sense with you know uh, the beer and the cigarettes and the mining tools and the dirty clothes um, it has to do with um, uh, the ways in which they portray themselves and, and choose to portray themselves within that image but also with uh, my particular experience with that archive when I found this image uh, in that same archive there was another photograph of these uh, uh, foreign, right, North American or, or perhaps European um, engineers um, uh, who uh, posed in a very similar way, um, but in different clothes and, you know, they, they looked much more um, uh, upscale, right, uh, uh, with, with suits and you know, fine glasses and, and these sorts of things. So um, one of the things that I, that I quickly surmised was that, you know, there's a sort of learning going on of these everyday Andeans, they see how photographs are being produced for others, often elites, foreign elites, right? Um, and they they learn these sorts of, of postures and and really the fabrication of, of self-portraits um, from them and then, right, uh, uh, employ these strategies to make pictures of themselves. Obviously, it's not just copying. They, you know, insert particular things, these two miners, for example, insert all those objects I've, I've talked about. Um, but they also, you know, insert a sort of body language that, that's uh, fascinating. Right? Uh, so I, I, I hope that, that answers the question. What is the constitutive contradiction of lettered indigenismo, and how did it frame your, frame your comments on Southern Andean photography? How, how did uh, Cusqueño Nierismo in particular aim to represent the splendors of the Incan past within a visual record of modernity? So the constitutive contradiction of, of, of lettering indigenismo um, has to do with uh, the, the interpretation of it from a kind of historical standpoint of um, a literature uh, and really a politics, right? that had to do a lot with an ascendant middle class. That is to say, there were often uh, what we would call mestizos, right? Uh, middle class mestizos 
who were voicing indigenismo, right? And these texts were were about indigenous peoples, right? But they were not for indigenous peoples um, for, for many reasons. Many indigenous peoples couldn't read. Um, many indigenous peoples were outside the sort of circles where within which print culture circulated. Um, so that's a sort of uh, that that's a sort of you know quick view onto that contradiction, and that's why, um, as I think I, I mentioned earlier, I was so interested in in photography because in a lot of the photography um, uh, from the period, uh, I, I'd say even the majority, I, I think, um, a, a lot of that um, of that self representation. Of indigenous uh, peoples and and mestizos, lower class people, right? Um, it it uh, it takes place w- within the photography. So so in that sense, it gives you a vision onto uh, subjects and a sector of society that lettered indigenismo uh, couldn't do, right? Um, the other question about how uh, Cusqueño indigenismo um, aimed to present the splendors of the Incan past. Uh, within the, the record of modernity. There, there's many instances of this. Um, uh, if, if one goes back into the visual record, uh, for example, there's all sorts of archaeological photographs, some taken by um, many of the same photographers that I study who also did studio portraiture. Um, you have, for example, um, these glorious images uh, done by Chambi, famously appearing in National Geographic, right? Um, uh, uh, very early on. Um, of, of Machu Picchu and other ruins. Uh, you also have uh, theater troops of uh, elite groups who dressed up as, as Incas, right, um, within that same visual record. So, so you can find that there, there's, a, there's, a rich, uh, there's a rich array of these representations that are, that are available out there. And they, they form a nice counterpoint with the, the sorts of images I'm, I'm looking at in this book. Can you describe the sources that conceived of photography as an illustration and in so doing insisted on hierarchical relationships between intellectual lettered practice and photographic images? Yeah, so there's a, a, a lot of these, some of which I just mentioned. If you, um, if you look at uh, archaeology, right, uh, clearly in uh, the archa- archaeological books from the period, um, you have... Uh, you have uh, photographs serving as illustration. So um, the archaeologist or the scientist or the anthropologist, right, will will um, make a point and say, and here's the proof, and there's a there's an image, right? Um, I think that uh, another example, which I I touch on in in Portraits in the Andes, is a uh, is a book that's it's not so well known, but it's it's fascinating. It's a kind of one of the early books of tourism uh, in in Peru. Um, it's called Cusco Historico, and there photographs uh, that are attributed in the book to to Chambi, um, as well as to uh, another photographer who I think is is anonymous. Um, uh, they serve a similar function, right? And it, it, it's quite striking because there are many ways in which one can think about interpreting those images. Sometimes there's a tension between what the uh, what the authors of the book of the text uh, say and what the what the images seem to indicate. Um, nevertheless, there's an effort to to make these images illustrative and therefore put them in a sort of um, in a secondary position, right? To to text. Right? So, on a related note, who contributed to the Cusco School of Photography, and why does the variety of photographers from Cusco to La Paz 
stand as an indicator for an examination of Southern Indian photography's value for the study of modern cultural and social history, especially in the circulation of photographs and photography's attendant presence in spaces and with social actors with which elite cultural practices often did not come into contact. Right, so the, the, the Cusco School of Photography uh, in, in scare quotes, right, is a, is a term that's used to um, designate a, a wide-ranging group, anywhere between 20 and, you know, upwards of 40 uh, photographers who, who were active in Cusco in the, in the early 20th century. Um, in, in the book, I don't, I, I, I indicate the term, but I, I actually, I try not to use it too much. Um, in part because as a term, it, it sort of communicates the idea that there's a, it, there's an art movement or everybody kind of is working in concert. And I think that the, the photographers in Cusco, who were indeed many, right, were, were not working in such a concerted way, or at least I found no evidence of, of that sort of, um, uh, uh, kind of collaborative, right, um, uh, groupthink or, or, or um, uh, visual efforts, right, on, on the part of this very broad-ranging array of photographers. Um, I found evidence of context, of course, right? There's, there's context between them. They often shared studios and worked together, and there's fascinating histories there. Um, so um, uh, the second part of your question has to do with the breadth of the, of the photographers. While some other photographers, um, especially earlier on in, in the 20th century, uh, worked with elites, right? Um, so, uh, you know, a, a good example there is, again, Martin Chambi or um, Figueroa Aznar, uh, who was not a photographer in, in the sense of a studio photographer, but he was taking pictures of kind of his elite family members. Um, while some of them worked with elites, many of them, um, you know, uh, went out into the market and uh, started working, especially as the, as the technology got cheaper, with uh, lower class individuals. So you have people like um, uh, you have uh, people like um, the uh, the Cordero brothers, right? Who, sorry, not the uh, Cordero brothers, but uh, the Cabrera. Sorry, you have uh, photographers like the Cabrera brothers who. Um, you know, in, in, in my research and in interviews, um, but also in the visual record, took, uh, took photographs of, of lower class um, Andeans and, and many of them. And it's my sense that many of these photographers uh, were dedicated to, to that sort of work. So the value for the historical record is enormous because you have access to um, the self-representations of those people who had no direct access to, uh, to writing, which is, you know, a... a uh, a technology of the powerful in in in, in many cases, right? In, in, in during this period, um, so uh, that's what I mean by its its special value, right? For for um, kind of understanding, right? The the the, the society of, of lower class Andeans. How did Southern Andean photography create sense through the presentation of bodies? And why did portraiture's wide dissemination as a practice become the primary way of representing subjects in private space? Yeah, that's a good question. And it goes to um, the importance of not only posture, but also, or, or pose, right? But also um, dress within the images. 
if you look at any of these these portraits, there's an enormous amount of care that goes into not only the the way that the face is presented, that that the body is held, but also um, the the details, the 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 sort of um, objects, right? Um, from clothes to jewelry to uh, to shoe wear to you know uh, many other things, right? And quite often, literal things are included within the within the photograph like clocks, right? Um, uh, that that create sense w- within the image, and by create sense, I mean they portray uh, a specific meaning, right? To the to the that, that the person in the image has. Um, for example, whether this person considers themselves, you know, a, a modern miner, right? Who um, who now has you know uh, a day's wages that can be spent on things like photography, right? Um, or whether uh, you know the person is able to simply access lots of consumer goods, right? And and what that means about the about the particular person. Um, so um, uh, I think that. What we're challenged to imagine when viewing photographs like that is what the meaning of those images is within the very private spaces within most of, most of this uh, studio portraiture circulated. Most of it is is small scale. It's for for families and for friends, and it's circulated in um, in albums, for example. It's true that some of it was shown in storefronts of the uh, uh, of the studios, um, but most of it uh, uh, wasn't. Um, so so. That's what I mean by you know it 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 it's a primary way of of people understanding you know who they are and and who they want to be um, within the small spaces of a family of domestic spaces right which which in any case are are I think overwhelmingly important in the in the period and region. How and why did the norms of portraiture within Andean image trans images transform into photography that recorded the complexity of human relationships in terms of how figures relate to others, both seen and unseen? Um, this has a lot to do with the, with the previous question, um, because I think one of the, one of the points um, that, uh, that's really important is um, the 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 social ties right that are evident um, either within the image or as a result of the images. Um, for example, right there there are some extraordinary images of um, of miners as you as you pointed out, um, uh, but you know uh, uh, other images as well on the record of um, of workers uh, sort of you know um, posing together right in which you're trying to communicate. Um, the idea either of a of a group and its labor, or in some cases an idea of you know the effect that labor has on a family. Right? Um, there are images of recently arrived uh, you know migrants um, who uh, began working in in for example Morococha in the mining camps, um, and those images are extraordinarily rich in communicating both. The ways in which traditions are brought from rural culture in the Andes to these, um, you know, more modern urban spaces, and also the way in which those those traditions are, in some cases, upended, and also in, in some cases, readapted, right, to the um, to the particular uh, to the particular context that that these Andeans find themselves in. Why do you believe that it is necessary to understand these images as always documentary through the method of invention, 
that is, as elaborate compositions that strive, as do other forms of cultural practice, to communicate the reality in which they are immersed. How did you assess the historical punctum of such images, especially in regards to performances of modernity and insertions of identity and gendered knowledge into photographic fields? By uh, documentary through the method of invention, um, what I'm trying to get at is the the peculiar access, the particular and peculiar access that these images provide um, to the historical and social context, right? Um, so I, I, I think what what my 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 interpretive lens has stayed away from is the idea that these images are simply um, you know uh, in fictions or or inventions that have little to do with um, uh, their social and historical context. On the contrary, what I've argued is that yes, um, they are fictive in some sense. There are inventions of the of the self or of the of the family, right? Um, uh, but I think that the self is closely related to family in many instances here. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that it can be separated from the historical context. What, what I mean by this is um, quite often these fictions that are communicated in the visual record are extraordinarily useful for negotiating the sort of symbolic imaginary that uh, one would presumably need or that these modern Indians would presumably need um, to, to insert themselves into their, into their context. It, is, it allows them to imagine who they are right, within this particular history, within these particular spaces, um, uh, sort of in the ways in which I've, I've spoken about um, uh, some of these group photographs right, um, uh, previously in our, in our conversation. Um, in terms of the in terms of the historical punctum, um, punctum is a term that I uh, that I picked up from the from the great um, theorist of photography Roland Barthes, right? Um, and what's interesting to me there are the ways in which there's a series of particular objects which um, uh, Barthes was quite right stand out in, in in any photograph. For me, what's interesting is the ways in which in this particular uh, photographic archive of, of Andean portraits, um, these, uh, these objects uh, point to uh, the ways in which these particular subjects are uh, inserting themselves into their modern moment, right? And, and how, uh, for example, uh, a richness of, of textiles allows uh, a presumably indigenous woman, right, to understand the ways in which she can not only survive within, within her within her contemporaneous moment, but also thrive within it, right? Um, and that's referenced to another photograph by the, by the Cabreras, uh, which is just extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily rich in, in, in the ways in which it uh, portrays the importance of being able to acquire goods like textiles. Can you further elaborate as well on the significance of omissions in group family and individualist photography? as well as the sartorial politics of indigenous attire for Inca Si, India No, uh, or otherwise. How did gender play a role, uh, for instance, in photography of female subjects in Collada? Right. So there's a, there's a couple of really interesting questions. Uh, um, the f- first one has to do with uh, this, this feature, um, uh, which I, I point out at several points in, in Portraits in the Andes, of these images. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's a it's a feature that involves erasing of uh, of 
images of, of people within the photograph. So, so what I mean is there'll be a portrait and in the portrait, there'll be somebody who's been scratched out either on the plate or on the actual print or, you know, at some point during the process, the image has been modified so that that person doesn't appear. Um, so uh, there's, there's uh, obviously also, you know, framing, right? That obviously would include some people and not include others, right? Um, but I think this, this image of a, uh, of a of a hand actually removing an, an, an object, um, it's it, or a person in a in a photograph, is uh, really important because it points to the ways in which these photographs aren't simply recordings of the real, but they're uh, they're fabricated right to portray families or individuals in particular ways, right? And this is done at the behest of uh, the sitters, right? In, in all likelihood. Probably also at the at the suggestion of the photographers, and it's done for for an array of reasons, right? Um, we know some of them, we don't know others. Yeah? Um, in terms of your um, your other question, um, uh, which has to do with uh, you know in, in indigenous attire, pollera, gender, right? Um, the the question of the pollera is probably, I think, the best way to tackle that. Uh, the poyeta, as you know, is a, is a, is a long um, skirt, typically associated, uh, many skirts actually, uh, typically associated with uh, indigenous w- women. Uh, Rosana Barragan has written about this in the Bolivian context um, very, very richly. She, she's detailed uh, the, the history of this. Um, uh, in in the record that I've that I've looked at, um, the poyeta appears both in the Peruvian uh, and Bolivian context. Um, and it's a particularly rich way in which connections to indigenous cultures are, uh, are portrayed, are, are communicated. Um, in the Bolivian uh, visual record especially, uh, the pollera is just present all over the place in a way in which it isn't really um, in, in Peru, right? In, in Lima, for example, um, uh, at the same period, one would have a very hard time finding uh, the poyera portrayed in that way. In the Bolivian context, it's clearly uh, a point of uh, pride, by which I mean a point of um, indigenous identity, identity that wants to be uh, projected by the subjects who use them, right through the through the um, portrait. Um, and it's also an indicator, um, given the specific historical context there, of the uh, the the social and economic mobility, right. Um, uh, of the economic wherewithal of uh, indigenous right uh, women within urban space, um, it's also this in the uh, in the highland Peruvian context. But again, uh, my sense has been uh, that it it exists to a, perhaps a lesser degree um, in that historical archive, although it certainly exists. I wanted to clarify a component of your theoretical reinterpretation. What is your conception of changing ownership in Southern Andean photography, specifically in the context of consumption and acts of interpretation across historical moments? How did uh, La Paz photographer uh, Julio Cordero, who I believe was Aymaran, reify ethnic and racial hierarchies, and why did his studio portraiture change around 1930? Right. I, I think one way of understanding um, uh, changing uh, changing ownership, right, um, has to do with uh, 
well, I mean, it has to do with literally like who, who owns the photograph, right? And, and what it means for, for those photographs to be, uh, to be owned. Um, this has to do and gets into a little bit, um, the idea of what's happened to many of these photographs after, uh, after a, a given amount of time. Um, but in the, the first instance, you know, ownership, um, is, is a, a truly significant, um, notion or feature because it has to do with the ways in which the the subject portrayed in the images, you know, um, uh, owned right. Not only the the images themselves, but also sort of managed the process of having these images done. Um, so, uh, in, in a sense, one thing that's that's truly important there is uh, the idea that that ownership right gave authority to what we can think of as as uh, you know subaltern subjects. Right to manage their own uh, to manage their own self-image and and how that would be transmitted. Right, um, if we think about ownership in other contexts, is in, in other contexts, um, what we've seen is uh, the that the ownership of the images. You know, once uh, photographers pass away or uh, families themselves no longer have a use for the images, once once the let's say primary owner or owners of the images um, pass on. Um, those images uh, enter into a sort of market, uh, which there exists in in the entire world, not only in Latin America or the Andes, um, for these sorts of older photographs. Um, and they, then, you know, the, the images obviously have a, a, a very different function, right? Um, I would say that they, became, they become much more sort of uh, objects of, of, of exchange and uh, objects for you know, collectors who oftentimes have very little to do with um, the, the original kind of historical context, right? Um, and this is just, a, I think, a, a basic fact about how these how these markets for these images um, work. Um, uh, you asked me about uh, Julio Cordero and about um, his his relationship to ethnic and uh, racial hierarchies. Um, Cordero is interesting because he... Um, in a first moment, he's um, really a photographer for the elites. Right? He has very little interest, um, as, as Bolivian scholars of photography have pointed out, in photographing you know anybody other than elites. Um, uh, you know, like some other photographers, he came himself from an indigenous background, but in his um, in his personal history, and this I know from from interviews with family members, he was not interested in. Um, in continuing his uh, his connection to indigenous cultures, as far as I've been able to see, so for example, he um, uh, banned the speaking by his family of Aymara in, in his home. Right. Um, so th- there's a way in which, uh, up until about 1930, and that's that's a rough estimate on the on the date, um, Cordero uh, kind of insistently refuses to photograph right um, any sort of uh, people outside the elite. Economic pressures mean that after 1930, he has to start, start taking pictures of, of people who have a broader, you know, at, at least class background. And you can see this from the sorts of dress that, that people often wear in a studio and also from the, from the economic record where you can see that the, the photographs after 1930 are, are much cheaper. He's selling them just for a lot less. Um, so, uh, so there, you know, he, he, because of economic pressures has to, you know, broaden the base of, of his images. Of course, um, there is another aspect to Cordero, which is um, his uh, photographs for uh, the police, right? 
in which uh, these are not these are not what I understand as portraits because the people portrayed in them are not they're not managing their own self images. It's the state and in particular the police who are. Um, and in these images, you know, you often get um, uh, very masculinist and racialist right understandings of indigeneity and, and of women. They're often photos of, of prostitutes, right? And um, uh, there's often uh, images of, of indigenous peoples, right? Um, uh, which we can glean from the names that, that are assigned to them, um, uh, often names from, from uh, Aymara, um, uh, as well as the, the, the phenotypic record, right, that, that we see. Um, so, uh, yeah, Cordero is a, a, a very interesting case, and his, his uh, archive is fascinating. I have one final question. What do you mean by horizontal when you characterize the relationship and transactions between photographers, subjects, and the broader community? And what are the dependent limits and interdependent contours of the archive for Southern Andean photography in the early 20th century? So by horizontal, I'm trying to get at an important aspect in uh, in the book, uh, but also um, generally, in, in terms of how we ap- approach photographic portraiture um, in the Andes and elsewhere, um, I, I think one uh, one way in which we might uh, approach the question of the relationship and transactions between photographers and subjects um, is by thinking of the photographer as a as a sort of author of the image, um, who then. Uh, dictates right what the structure of the image is um and that the subjects simply insert themselves in in, into this undoubtedly photographers had um a a great deal of influence because of their experience right with uh with the technology um on what uh on what the what the images right uh look like on, on how they should be organized um but from you know interviews and 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 from other research um my my understanding right is that um it, it was actually much more of a collaborative effort um between uh subjects and and photographers um so that you know in some sense and because of the ways in which subjects were paying for the image right um uh, there was uh, a, a a sort of a, attempt to to work uh, shoulder to shoulder on creating images for for individuals, right? So that way of understanding, um, uh, you know, agency and consumption, right, in photographic portraiture, um, means that you know uh, subjects aren't merely you know uh, objects, right, um, to photographers. Rather, they're they're clients, right, who have a great deal of sway in how uh, in how they're their self-images are, are presented in the visual record. In terms of your questions about archive, right, um, uh, that's an interesting one. And, you know, towards the end of the book, and in fact, in the last chapter, um, I've, I've meditated a, a little bit on that. What's, what's been most of interest to me um, has been, you know, one, um, communicating, and I hope I have in, in Portage in the Andes, the enormity of this archive. It's, it's huge. There's, um, you know, examples, I think in, in every corner of the Andes in, in every small town, right. In, in, uh, in the early 20th century, 
right? You would have either a photographer or an itinerant photographer who would, you know, go through the town and, and create images for people. And these images have, have persisted, right? Um, uh, in, in that sense, right, um, you know, this, this archive, um, as I've said uh, previously, it, it allows access to an enormous kind of historical, social, right, richness, right, um, uh, that, you know, perhaps we don't have access to in, in other ways. Um, that same archive, uh, I think, is, is perhaps troublingly, right, also being removed, right, from those same spaces um, so that it, um, it uh, for, for very good reasons, right, um, is preserved within um, uh, centers where um, the images then become, you know, uh, part of a, of a broader history of a, perhaps a, a national history or uh, an urban history or in any case, one that um, has less to do with, with the families, um, you know, themselves. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things about that, and and I want to stress that I, I agree that these images must be preserved, right? Um, but one of the interesting uh, contradictions, right, in, in that movement is it uh, puts images into um, a trajectory, a historical uh, continuum that has less to do with the places within which they originated and has more to do with um, the sort of histories we create from scholarship of, you know, visual culture, um, especially, you know, art histories, right? Um, but really any sort of history of, of visual culture. Um, so I think there's a, there's a really interesting tension there. And I also think that there's, there's ways of addressing, right? Um, uh, what might be viewed as a, as an issue or, or, or a problem in the ways in which we manage archives. I think there's wonderful ways, especially with current technologies, um, of, of addressing those sorts of, of, of issues with archives. Um, so I, I'm, I hope that, that, uh, that that gets to, uh, uh, that that gets to your question. Much appreciated, Professor. I have one extra question. Can you disclose anything about your next project or future pro- plans? Yes, Ryan. Thanks for that question uh, as well. I'm actually working on a couple of projects. Um, uh, one is um, a sort of uh, a sort of cultural. Uh, cultural biography of a concept. Um, you know, Luandino or the Andean is a term that has allowed us to conceptualize the region um, over its over its modern history. So from, uh, you know, the early 20th, uh, sorry, the early 19th century, the independence period, um, until very recently. And I've been very interested to, um, uh, to trace out how that idea originates in, in archaeology, um, in my view. And then moves through literature and literary practices in the early 20th century and into the mid, and then uh, jumps into jumps into um, uh, what I would say is the area of cultural consumption. So one example of that is, for example, neo-Peruvian cooking. Right? Um, there's a there's a really um, persistent and and powerful idea of the Andean, right? Which um, which you know, animates the the consumption of this uh, usually um, high end uh, uh, food uh, production, right? Um, I'm talking about the many kinds of restaurants that we see not only within Peru um, but a- outside of Peru, especially in Europe and in and in North America. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in um, in thinking about how 
uh, how that notion uh, has developed and has moved through these very different sorts of spheres to end up as a sort of um, as a sort of strategy for managing you know uh, uh, a global market of cultural consumption, right? Um, uh, so that's uh, that's one project. I'm working on another project, which is more in the beginning stages of um, uh, the relationships between intellectuals and uh, indigenous peoples, um, and per- perhaps more broadly, written Latin America, simply subaltern subjects, um, and the ways in which literacy is transmitted from quite often from intellectuals to subaltern subjects, and the ways in which these subaltern subjects then um, utilize literacy in peculiar ways, right? Um, uh, right now, the scope of that project um, uh, is based in in the Andes, which is what I'm most conversant in. But I would uh, really like to um, work more uh, on a continental uh, scale, um, even though that might take many many more years to to complete uh, as a project. But I'm I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot again for for that question. Well, we're looking forward to that. So this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Professor Coronado for the Native American Studies Channel, the New Books Network. Two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.